Well, I guess for some of us, uh, a baptism is a new thing, uh, and for others, it's something that we've seen on many occasions. But I thought it would be good for us to uh, whiz ourselves back a couple of thousand years uh, and look at what was happening in those first few years uh, after Jesus was here uh, on this earth and after he had uh, commissioned his church to go and do something. Jesus was very clear. He said that when I leave, you are to do something. And what you are to do is to take the good news of me into the whole of the world. What was the good news and when did he say that? Well, the good news was his risen life. That's the amazing thing that we see in the commission of Jesus. We'll read it at the end of Matthew chapter 28. He's telling his disciples to go and do something, but he's telling them to do something after he has died, after he is buried, and after he has risen again. That's what makes the commission of Jesus remarkable. It might have been an interesting message if he had said to his disciples, now you go and take this message and you share this message to all sorts of people around the world, and then he died. There's lots of people who've done that. There's lots of people who've created some sort of following, some sort of significant message, and they've told many people, when I die, go and take this, spread this message to lots of other people, so that, in a sense, my message doesn't die. The good news of my my vision for whatever it might be uh, continues. One of the things that we see which is distinct about Jesus, which marks him out as completely separate from any other bringer of a good message, is that his commission to do something he gave while he was alive after dying. That's a remarkable thought, and yet the whole of the Christian message rides on that. Paul says, This is so important, it's so critical, that if Jesus didn't rise again, I might as well effectively, he says, you might as well forget everything that I say. In a sense, he's saying, I might as well go and do something else instead. It's just pointless. It's a waste of time. And yet the message of Jesus that is given, he gives to his disciples on the mountain just before he returns to heaven, after he has risen from the dead. This is what he says. And, And it comes with a remarkable opening phrase. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know what? You can, anybody can claim that, can't they? I can claim, you can claim all sorts of authority, but it's meaningless unless we carry some sort of stamp of authority. One of the things that we, we know very clearly that we're all encouraged to do, whenever, whenever somebody comes and knocks at your door claiming to be X, Y, Z, whatever you do, make sure that you ask for the ID. Don't let anybody into your house without making, very cl- making sure, very clear, that you know who is coming into your house. Jesus brings an authority. His authority is the fact that he is standing there, alive after dying. 
He's defeated death, and therefore, he says, all authority has been given to me. It's a connection that he makes between the death, between death and life, between heaven and earth. He says, all authority from heaven is given to me, and in a sense, because I have that, I now, I, I can tell you to do something that nobody else has the authority to do. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what he says. Go now. Whatever you do, don't stay just here. This is a message for the whole world. Now, actually, what we see is that uh, there's quite a reasonable period of time where actually the disciples do stay around the Jerusalem area. They don't immediately pack up their bags and respond to that uh, and start to spread out. In fact, what causes them to start to spread out is when they start being persecuted for the fact that they do believe in Jesus. They get pushed out into all sorts of places. From Jerusalem, they end up in that wider area, into Samaria. Uh, And then what we see in the reading that we've had a little earlier is we see the work of the church as it starts to organize itself. It starts to think of that calling that Jesus made. And we start to see uh, this developing ministry of Peter and Paul and John and other disciples and other individuals whose names we do not know who start to latch on to this that Jesus has said. And they start to take this message into all sorts of different parts of the world. What we've read, what we read earlier, is an event in a city called Philippi. Greek city. In lots of ways, you would probably compare Jerusalem and Philippi, uh, and you would say that one is a kind of really cosmopolitan uh, trading center, and one carries the history of religion. Jerusalem carries the history of religion, and this is the new metropolis. It's one of the significant Roman Empire cities. It's something which you would compare as the kind of, you probably think it's the kind of cool place to live compared to being out in the sticks or compared to being in the ancient world, the backward thinking of Jerusalem. That's what I find really exciting, is what we see in this interesting early section of the message uh, of the Bible going out, the message of Jesus going out, is it engages in all sorts of places that in religious terms, you probably wouldn't expect the message of Jesus to engage with. And what we see is, uh, we see Paul and Silas, and they are spending their time Uh, And they are sharing the message of Jesus. They're going around this city, sharing this message, talking to different people about Jesus. And while they're talking, while they're sharing this message, uh, there is following them a girl, a slave girl, who is owned by her masters because of her fortune-telling ability. She has... She also sits in a strange world 
between the supernatural and, between the, and the natural. There is some sense of connection with the supernatural world. We don't see it so often, but I know that some of you have been engaged with that. I know that some of you have seen this. I know that there are parts of the world that continue to be remarkably shaped by the impact of that uh, desire to be connected with the supernatural world. Go into other parts of the world, and it is nothing like Western Europe. There are really frightening, scary things going on because of a desire to connect with something that we don't see. And yet what we see is this girl is following Paul and Silas. She's blurting out, she's saying again and again, something significant. These are bringers of a profound message. These men are bringing the message from the Most High God. This is something which you, in a way, she is probably the most unexpected evangelist that you could ever want. You know, Paul and Silas get frustrated, and yet there is a spiritual connection which is speaking amazing truth. That's incredible. One of the things that we see in the ministry of Jesus, repeated again and again, is that when other people didn't recognize who Jesus was, the supernatural world knew who he was. That's that's kind of repeated here, isn't it? This slave girl who has this fortune-telling revenue stream that her her slave masters uh, are coining it in because of this ability that she has. She has this extra perception in this pagan city. This, these guys are speaking about the true God. I find that remarkable for another reason. It completely undermines her own job, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? Forget what I do, this is the true God. It's probably just about, it's beginning to build up to one of the worst advertising campaigns you could imagine. <laughs> Don't listen to me, listen to them, is the beginnings of what she's saying. And then there comes a point where this is frustrating them so much that Paul turns around and he speaks with an authority and in that moment, her connection with the supernatural world is gone. It is broken. I think what the Bible is trying to communicate to us is for her, that is the best news that she could ever experience in her life. We live in a world where there's all sorts of interest in the supernatural. I guess I'm old enough to to have grown up in a world where in my early life, most people were trying to, by scientific means, deny anything supernatural. And yet what we see emerging is a greater and greater interest in the supernatural. And for many it has become an absolute slavery. It, it, it isn't something that they control. It's something that controls them. And this girl is, in a sense, she is a slave in two ways. 
She is a slave to the supernatural world. And she is a slave because she is owned by her slave owners as a revenue stream to tell fortunes. And with the authority of the voice of Paul, in one moment, she is released from both in one sense. She's released from that bondage of connection with a world that she cannot control, and she is no longer a revenue stream. I think there's something else which I think this little cameo points to. There's all sorts of ways, if we put this kind of experience that she has under the great big umbrella of religion, there's all sorts of ways where people use the power of the supernatural world, the power of religion for one means, to make money. And that was the problem with the, the slave owners. Their revenue stream just disappeared. <laughs> she was released and they lost a fortune. In one moment for them, their source of revenue disappeared, their kind of insight which they had through her, their way of making money was gone, and they were furious. And the end result of that is that Paul and Silas are taken before the magistrates, they are ordered to be stripped, and they are beaten and put in prison. Isn't it interesting? Uh, this, this is a remarkable little story. Somebody who's enslaved becomes free, and those who are free end up enslaved. Isn't that amazing? The one who was in bondage to the spirit world is now liberated. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I would think the implication is that her recognition of who these two men were proclaiming was so deep and so powerful that it would not surprise me one little bit if she is not in heaven. <laughs> that kind of impact on her life is so dramatic, it would not surprise me if we're going to spend eternity with her if we believe and trust in that same Jesus. I think it's quite possible the way the story is described by the narrator. The one who is enslaved goes free, and those who are free end up enslaved. Paul and Silas are in the middle of the prison. They've been, they've been held in, in chains. They've been beaten. They've not been, you know, smacked a little bit. They've been stripped of their clothes and they've been beaten with rods. When we read that in the middle of the night... They are singing and they are praying. I think we can probably read that those songs were songs of painful joy, sung out probably through broken lips and a bleeding mouth and with tear stains and with hurt. You know, sometimes when we read this kind of thing, we have this, this kind of ideal world, fairy story idea of the New Testament, where Paul and Silas are these kind of superheroes who have the ability to sing joyfully on the top of their voices in the middle of the night, 
after they've been beaten, that somehow those, those wounds don't actually somehow hurt them. I think the reality is that they were broken men. And yet, at, at the very worst moment, in the cold of the middle of the night, it, you know, don't you? You, you know when, you've, when you're not well, or when you've got some kind of an injury, or when you're frightened about something that is going to happen, what is the worst time? Middle of the night, isn't it? The worst time is the middle of the night when you wake up, and it's dark, and you're the only one, or maybe there's one other person with you, and you're just kind of you're there, and you, you're kind of feeling that sense of fear. At that moment, in the middle of that kind of state, we have these two men who are in pain, in hardship, singing. Praise to God through tears. It is the most remarkable statement of, of real faith that we can see. People who are really expressing faith. It's not some kind of glitzy, nice, cutesy kind of thing. They are in the middle of brokenness. And then, there is a dramatic event. While they're singing, there is a rumble, then a crash, then an explosion, an earthquake. You've, you've seen the, the videos, haven't you? You've seen the kind of videos from various parts of the world where earthquakes are actually rumbling places away, and you see the whole place shaking, and you see the people responding in fear. At that moment, the doors, well, expectedly, actually, if you start messing around with the geometry of a door frame, doors pop open. That's what happens. Uh, and where chains are embedded in between rocks, when the rocks move, those chains break open. At that moment in time, as the earthquake takes a hold of this prison, all of a sudden, they are all potentially free. They are at that point of being free to disappear, to escape. And the jailer is terrified. The jailer now becomes this central character in the story. The jailer is what? While he was just having his cup of red wine before he settled down for the night, what is he? He is free. The jailer is free at that moment in time, and Paul and Silas, they're the ones who are enslaved. And then at that moment in time, when the earthquake rumbles, and it looks as if all of the prisoners have potentially escaped, the jailer is immediately enslaved. He's not enslaved physically. He's enslaved with terror. He's enslaved with fear because now he recognizes that all of those who are his responsibility, who he is responsible to keep a hold of, including these two who have caused carnage in the marketplace earlier on in the day, they're all going to escape and he is now enslaved with fear. He's reached one of those moments in life. I, I guess most of us have various moments in life. 
Moments which become absolutely critical for our future outcome. What, what we actually decide to do at that moment is critical to the future. And it's exactly the same for this jailer at this moment in time. He is now fearful that his life is going to be taken because he is responsible as a Roman jailer for the safekeeping of those who he is responsible for. If they go free, he dies is the basic rule. And so he's terrified. What do we do? What do we do in those moments? I think there are probably three responses. I think probably most of us respond in one of these ways. We try to perhaps master the issue. We try to control it. We try to do something so that we can, with whatever resources we've got, we can master it. And yet, there's occasions when we realize that no matter what we do, no matter what resources we mobilize, we do not have enough resources to master the issue. When we realize that, we end up in that second response. So when the, if the first is trying to emotionally rise above it, the second is when we just crumble, when we just fall apart. When we look at the issues that are attacking us and we realize they are so big, I cannot do anything about them. They have defeated me. I am emotionally defeated. I am crushed. I am broken. I think that that probably is where the jailer is. He's at that point where all of his previous experience, all of his hard training, it, it, from what I've read, most jailers, it was the kind of cushy number for those who've served in the Roman armies. After you've really done your stint, being a Roman jailer was one of the cushy numbers in many cases. We don't know for this man, it's quite possible that that was the case. So for all of that experience, for all of his past where the idea of just brutalizing prisoners, throwing them into cells, binding them up, giving them a kick, giving them a slap, all of the things which was just normal life for him, that's gone. He can't fall back on that, and he is emotionally broken. And then, in the middle of that brokenness, Paul shouts out, don't worry. We're all here. Don't worry, we haven't escaped. How does he respond then? How does the jailer respond at that moment? I think for him, at that very moment, it's as though all sorts of strands came rushing in on his thinking. All sorts of things suddenly made sense. Why are these guys here in the first place? Because they've been talking about this new God that is being talked about by these people who are coming into our city. They've caused havoc. 
because they've brought a spiritual authority which has robbed citizens of this town from their revenue stream by a connection with the supernatural. I throw them in prison and in the middle of the night they're singing songs of praise and they're praying even though they must be physically broken. And then at that moment, I would say for the, for the, for the jailer at that point, he now says what I think all of us ultimately at some point in time really need to do. If emotionally he couldn't control it, and he realizes that he is emotionally devastated and broken, he does the one thing that he desperately needs to do. He looks outside of himself for help. He looks outside of himself. And he says this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's, it's just an incredible phrase, isn't it? It's something which, in one sense, seems alien. The, the, the most normal thing that he would do when he hears a voice would be rush in with a sword and make sure that he holds them all at, he can't hold them at gunpoint, can he, <laughs> in 2,000 years ago, but effectively do that. Whatever you do, don't escape. That would be a natural response. And yet for this man, this is his moment in life where he is confronted with a message which is bigger than all of the other things in life. And he realizes that at that moment he sees that the message that Paul and Silas have brought is, is just beyond anything else. And he says, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? You would say, actually, he's already been saved in human terms. He's already saved, isn't he? Because all of the prisoners haven't escaped. In human terms, he is saved. It's all okay. But he realizes it's not all okay. It's deeper than this. It's bigger than this. It's more significant than simply keeping hold of the prisoners. There is a spiritual saving that needs to take place. There is a me-reconciliation with the God of heaven and earth that needs to take place. And I now recognize that you are the ones who can explain to me what it really means to be saved. You know, we're going to be sharing in the joy of Virginia's baptism in a few minutes... What are we enjoying? What are we sharing in? We're sharing in the recognition of somebody like many others here who have said, I really, really need to be saved. It's not just about being a bit better. It's not about being fixed in this life. It's about being relationally right with God. And for this jailer at that moment, that's what he asks how do they respond? I, I love this because it's so remarkably simple. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's 
what they say. That's, what it, that's all it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does, it, what does that mean? What does, I, you know, I believe that two and two is four. Um, if we've got any maths geniuses in who can prove to me afterwards that in the kind of, you know, the amazing journeys of mathematicians, that's not quite right. But for most mortals like you and me, two and two is four. I believe that's to be the case. That's not what they're talking about here. What they are saying is, believe in Jesus. Believe in a way which says, I give myself to you. That's the kind of belief that they're talking about. I believe in you strips me of every bit of self-dependence. At that moment when he realized he needed not to be just introduced to God, I need to be saved, they say, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Be stripped of every little bit of self-sufficiency and trust in Jesus and you will be eternally saved. It is, in one sense, it's so simple, and yet in another sense, it is so profound. It is the most remarkable statement. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Why, did, why do they say that? Why did Jesus commission his disciples to go and tell the whole world why 2,000 years later are churches across the world still saying the same thing? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Because it's connected right the way back to the first bit. It's connected to the bit which says that Jesus said, go and do this after he died, after he'd been buried, and after he had risen again. It says, if you believe in that risen Jesus then when you die, you will live. That simple message of the, of the gospel of Jesus has been at the heart of the Christian faith for 2,000 years, and it will continue to be the key message of the Bible until Jesus returns again. And in a sense, whether we're sat in a Philippi jail in the, mid, in the aftermath of an earthquake with dust still settling, with people still screaming, with blood on our faces, and somebody asks, how can I be saved? The answer then was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In the middle of Castleford, in a nice complex like this, with all of the comforts of this kind of place, with warmth and no fear, and somebody says, how can I be saved? The answer is still the same. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. You give yourself to him. You surrender your life to him. The response from the jailer is amazing. He takes them, he cleans their wounds, he sorts them out. All of his family are baptized. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all of the others in, his, in, that, in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. What does baptism say? It says physically... I'm connected to that Jesus. How? When somebody walks towards this pool of ordinary water, it's nothing holy, we've, we've kind of poured it out of, down a hose into this tank, 
Uh, and when we're done, it's going to go through a pump back down the loo. This is normal water. But what's going on is it as a symbol of connection with Jesus. When somebody walks up to this and says, I believe in Jesus, please baptize me. It is saying, I go in there as a symbol of the person that I once was. And then I die in a sense and I am lowered into the grave and I come up and I, I am alive again. I love the fact that baptism is that simple. It's just a picture. It's not a whole load of complex words. It's an enactment of saying that I am in Jesus. It's saying that's what I believe. I believe that. For all of my life, for all of my eternity, I'm now connected to that Jesus who died, rose again, and lives. And therefore, my rebellion, my sin against God has been dealt with, and I live in Him. That is great news. Why is it great news? Because it means that we're saved. It means that we're right with God. Look at the way the jailer responded. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. This is just great, this bit. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. What makes you happy? We hear a lot about happiness. But the reality is that this world can never, never give us eternal happiness. It can give us moments, but they're fleeting. The only thing that is eternal is God. And that's why the jailer is filled with joy. Because he believes in the eternal God. And he's now right. That's what we're celebrating today. We're celebrating 2,000 years later what happened in Philippi to a Roman jailer. Just an ordinary guy whose world was turned upside down, who was suddenly confronted with a moment in life, what am I going to do? And at that moment he said, I believe. 